This is an ABC podcast. We're going to have to somehow try and cut some sort of conversation or deal with, with Putin. And in the end, we have to ask ourselves one question. Not what makes us feel good in the West, but what is the least bad outcome for the Ukrainian people? That's Sir Max Hastings on why we should be ready to make painful concessions to Moscow to end the Ukraine war. Hello there, this is Tom Switzer from Radio National here. Welcome to another episode of Between the Lines. Stay with us for my chat with the distinguished military historian Max Hastings on the lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis 60 years ago. But first, Alexander Downer. He was our nation's longest serving foreign minister from early 96 to late 2007. And he was a federal Liberal MP from 1984 to 2008. These days, Alexander Downer is executive chairman of the International School of Government at King's College London. Hi there, Alexander. Uh, Hi, Tom. You were the foreign minister at the 1997 APEC summit. That was in Vancouver. You opposed the Clinton administration's plan to expand NATO. You thought it would be a historic mistake. Tell us more. Well, the deal at at the 1997 APEC meeting, which, as you say, was in Vancouver, was that APEC would be expanded to include Russia as compensation for Russian dissatisfaction with the expansion of NATO to the east. And there were two things I thought about that at the time. One was that I didn't want Russia in APEC because I thought that would make APEC more unwieldy and difficult. And actually, I don't think they have as much as I expected. But secondly, I thought that the expansion of NATO, given Russia's history and the psychology of Russians, would only exacerbate tensions with Russia. And so the deal wasn't a good deal. And I argued that in Vancouver, but the only country that supported me amongst the APEC members at the time was Singapore. So we were massively outnumbered and the Americans in the form of Madeleine Albright got their way. Do you think then that NATO expansion, and there have been several stages of NATO expansion since the late 1990s, do you think then that NATO expansion has just provoked Russia, hence this crisis? I don't want to justify anything Russia has done in Ukraine in any way at all because I think it's just gross. It's the most barbaric thing that I've seen in my life, by the way. I think it's just appalling what they've done. So I don't want to give them any comfort. But, of course, um, Russia is absolutely obsessed with what it perceives to be the threat from the West. Um, And you can understand that, given that Russia has been attacked from the West for centuries from the Lithuanians and the Swedes, Napoleon, Hitler, of course, uh, the Kaiser before Hitler. So they have suffered grievously from attacks from the West. So what Russia wants is buffer states to protect it, given that it doesn't have any serious natural boundaries to its West. And so they'll always look to have buffer states. And so as the buffer states are gradually taken away and become part of NATO, that's contributed significantly to their paranoia. I often point out that Estonia, which is the most easterly part of uh, NATO, 
is only about 120 kilometers from St. Petersburg. So, you know, given their paranoia, um, given the fact that they see NATO as a threat to Russian security, which we all know it isn't, then they're very nervous about it. And then you've got a big country like Ukraine, 45, 44 million people, um, a huge landmass, and it starts lurching towards the European Union and NATO as well. And for the Russians, they've seen this as just one step too far. That does explain the psychology behind it, but that's not to justify, of course, what they've done. Now, you've said that Putin has exposed the weakness of America and the West more generally, and that autocratic governments have increasingly judged that the West is a paper tiger. You've made this point in your financial review column. But Alexander, hasn't this crisis exposed Putin's foolishness for it's Russia that's bogged down in Ukraine? Well, reckless is an understatement. It's a catastrophic mistake for the Russians to have done this. And You know, they have got terribly bogged down. There's a story now that they've lost 10,000 soldiers or 10% Mm. of the soldiers they sent into the battle. Well, whether that's true or not, it's hard to know. But they have suffered grievously for what they've done. And, of course, economically, it's a catastrophe for them. If Putin conquers Ukraine, which at this stage seems unlikely for the reasons you've mentioned, Xi Jinping will have picked the winning horse. But even if the invasion fails... The West and America's Asian allies will still be demoralised by a petition of Ukraine and Russia will still be a reliable supplier of fossil fuels to China for as long as Western sanctions persist. So is it possible, Alexander, that China emerges stronger as a consequence of Ukraine? Well, I don't think it is. No, I think this is um, exposing China's catastrophic foreign policy under Xi Jinping. I think he's the worst foreign policy president or leader of China that they've had since Mao Zedong. China has has carefully developed its economy through opening its economy, engaging with the West, uh, importing, of course, in some cases, stealing Western technology, and by creating something akin to a liberal market economy within China, though I wouldn't call it exactly a liberal market economy, this has worked incredibly well for China. So Xi Jinping has decided that that's not the right way to go, that China's now become very powerful and successful and it should start throwing its weight around. So Xi Jinping has, first of all, alienated, in some cases in quite an extreme sense, um, countries in the Indo-Pacific region, obviously the United States, um, but um, Australia, Japan um, and India, For other countries that aren't part of the Quad in the Indo-Pacific region, they're still very nervous about China throwing its weight around in its aggression. It's pursued uh, wolf warrior diplomacy, as it's called, unbelievable bellicose and rude statements from its diplomats, offensive uh, behaviour. The thing about that is it's all very well, as we know from our own experience of life, it's all very well to be offensive to people, but it doesn't win them over. Um, And so China has rallied so much of the world, in particular the Western world, against it. And what's the point of that? I mean, more than half of the global global GDP is tied up in just the G7 countries. It's got the UK, the European Union, the United States and Canada. 
all lined up against it now. What What's the advantage of that for China? Where does that lead it? Then add to all of that this extraordinary alliance that they've started to, that Xi Jinping has started to build with um with a man who's who's really sort of operating out of his out of his century in President Putin, I mean, why would anyone want to be seen lined up with President Putin? So you know, I think Xi Jinping's foreign policy has been a catastrophe. Now, Alexander, um, Beijing has long believed that the Americans, the Australians, and others won't fight to defend the island democracy of Taiwan. I mean, do you think that the Ukraine crisis now has changed all this because Beijing may now recognise the consequences that have befallen Russia for its reckless invasion? Alexander Downer. Well, I think a couple of things about that. I think, first of all, obviously President Putin didn't anticipate the strength of the Western, if we could call it that, the liberal democratic reaction um, to his invasion of Ukraine, perhaps with good reason, because he sees President Biden as a weak president. The withdrawal from Afghanistan sent out a very weak and I thought myself very unwise message. President Biden isn't um, seen as somebody who's sharp and aggressive. The West also, particularly the Europeans, have been very divided. The Germans under Angela Merkel became very dependent on Russian energy for their economy, their heating and their, their fuel. You know, he obviously made a calculation which was the wrong calculation because the West, rather incredibly, has rallied together and rallied together very powerfully. I think in Beijing, if they notice anything, if they can set aside their hubris and their arrogance for a couple of days, they'll realise that there would be very high risk involved in a military attack on Taiwan. And if they were to do that, uh, there's every chance that the United States, Japan and their allies would come to the defence of Taiwan. So it also demonstrates a point that, you know, although Ukraine's population is very much smaller than Russia's and its military much smaller, it's not easy to invade another country successfully. My guest is Alexander Downer, Australia's longest serving foreign minister from early 1996 to late 2007. And you can read his columns in the Australian Financial Review every second Monday. Alexander, uh, you write a very devastating column about the United States withdrawal from Afghanistan mid to late last year. Now, bearing in mind that uh, America could very well be focused on Eastern Europe for some time now, given those internal divisions and the toxic polarisation in Washington, do all these challenges restrain America's ability to assert its will and influence across our region, the Asia-Pacific, in the face of Chinese intransigence? Well, I think the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan and particularly the way in which the withdrawal took place by the Americans um, had a very negative effect on American prestige and standing everywhere, but including in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, I also think the internal debates in America, the way the country has been salami sliced into its racial groups and Set people's sexual orientation and so on, the, you know, the woke agenda um, mm. and the debate well, about cancel it. culture and, the, and all that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it um, has, to, in the eyes of the world, very substantially weakened America. But mm. I'd have to say 
they have started to wake up in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and hopefully that will ensure that the Americans become a little bit more robust in their dealings in the Indo-Pacific region as well. I'm hoping that um, in Beijing, at least if not Xi Jinping, others are going to start taking the United States a bit more seriously. But And the other thing is the United States has been very united in its reaction to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And there is bipartisanship in terms of dealing with China as well in the United States. So, you know, all is not lost. My guest is former Foreign Minister Alexander Downer. Finally, Alexander, the Liberal Party's recent loss in your home state of South Australia. Many commentators are saying this is a sign that the federal Liberals could also lose power. Question, has the pandemic played into the hands of the political left, not just in Australia, but around the world? I do think it has in the short term. I don't uh, think it will do in the medium term, but in the short term, I do think it's played into their hands. How so? um, Well, in a couple of ways. First of all, you've seen very heavy, um, I think, by the way, far too heavy intervention by the state and the protection of uh, citizens by the state. So individual civil liberties have just been cast aside. The notion of selfless individualism, which lies at the heart of the Liberal Party of Australia and the centre-right political parties around the world, um, selfless individualism has been cast aside for uh, state intervention and direction and diktats. Um, And secondly, in terms of the economy, that just the huge increase in spending to compensate for the impact of state intervention and state closure of much of the economy it hasn't had too deleterious effect in the short term. And so, you know, health has been at the forefront of the agenda, mm. whereas for Conservative parties, national security and economic management are their greatest strengths, health and education are for the parties of the left, their greatest strengths. So in the short term, this has played quite well for parties of the left, and you can see that around the world in election results. In the medium term, I think it will be devastating for them because as a result of the huge increases in spending, not just uh, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, you're going to see very substantial increases in inflation. We're moving back into an era of stagflation. And so all the arguments about the liberal economy not to gainsay the arguments about individual liberties, selfless individualism, as I like to Alexander Downer, a pleasure to have you on ABC Radio National. It's a great pleasure, Tom. Alexander Downer, Australia's longest-serving foreign minister from early 1996 to late 2007. On RN, this is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Despite Vladimir Putin's thinly veiled threats, we're still a distance from the brink of Armageddon in Ukraine. However, according to my next guest, at least one important point should be made amid the new reality created by the Russian invasion. While the West wishes for an end of Putin and a liberated Ukraine, the only realistic hope is for a deal with Moscow. In other words, we should be ready to support a compromise to make painful concessions to Moscow to end the Ukraine war. So Max Hastings is well-placed to address these issues, not just because he's the world's most distinguished military historian, but because he's the author of a forthcoming book 
on an international crisis in Cuba six decades ago that is analogous to the present crisis in Ukraine. The book, due in September, is called Abyss. The Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962, is published by HarperCollins. I spoke with Sir Max a week ago. Lovely to be with you again, Tom. Let's start with the lessons of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Take us back 60 years ago to October 1962. The world was then a very scary place. and I was a teenager at school, busy trying to not go to the football field. Um, but even I can remember, and, and everybody of my age can remember, just how terrified the world was. And although after the missile crisis, everybody applauded uh, John F. Kennedy, said how brilliant he played it, and so on. At the time, although Americans supported him, a lot of America's allies were just as scared that the Americans might overreach themselves, that the, the Russians might. Now, there are two lessons, I think, from that episode, which of course started when Nikita Khrushchev secretly deployed ballistic nuclear missiles in Cuba. Now, realistically, those missiles didn't change a lot because the world was just entering the age of submarine-launched uh, ballistic missiles, both Russian and American. And of course, these posed a much greater threat uh, in the oceans of the world to the United States and Russia than anything in Cuba. But the gesture, the Russian gesture, 90 miles from America's shores, electrified America because it, it was deliberately intended as a threatening gesture. So the president had to be seen to do something. Now, Kennedy's military advisors, terrifyingly, um, urged him collectively. The Joint Chiefs of Staff said, first of all, massive air attack on Cuba, flatten the Ruskies, follow it up with an invasion, um, do away with Castro, occupy the island. Well, we should always be grateful to John F. Kennedy, whatever else he got right or wrong, that week he played a blinder because he immediately saw that this um, threatened to precipitate global war, nuclear war. Years later, he said to uh, the economist, Kenneth Galbraith, he said, Ken, you've no idea how much terrible advice I got that week. And so he did. So John F. Kennedy played a blinder. He saw from the beginning as most of his advisors did not, that he wasn't going to get um, an outright military victory over Russia and he shouldn't look for one. He was going to have to cut a deal of some kind. And from the beginning, he was thinking about what that deal might be. From the beginning, he saw that removing um, American nuclear weapons from Turkey, on, on obviously very close to Russia, uh, was almost certainly going to have to be part of the deal. But secondly, and this is also very important, the threat of American force, of American power, had to be there also. And the basic reason, on the one hand, Khrushchev eventually backed off uh, because he was able to claim a sort of victory that the Americans gave him two promises. One open, that they would not invade uh, Cuba, that they would not try and overthrow Fidel Castro. And secondly, a secret promise that they'd remove the missiles. But in the background, and this is also vital to, to remember, Khrushchev was terrified that the Americans who'd been massing forces on the eastern shoreline of the United States were about to invade and bomb Cuba. And he knew that when Cuba was so close to America, the 43,000 Russian troops uh, on Cuba were going to be flattened unless they used tactical nuclear weapons, which they had on the island. So 
Yes, the world was a very dangerous place in 1962 and in October. Um, but secondly, it was that combination of a willingness to deal and the threat of force that enabled uh, um, Kennedy to prevail. And this is terribly important in the context of where we are today. And we'll get to that in a moment. So just to summarise succinctly, an important part of Kennedy's greatness, and you make it clear it was greatness, this derived yeah. from JFK's swift perception that he must seek a bargain with Khrushchev rather than Russia's outright defeat. That's your line. Well, that's still true today, that I don't personally believe that military victory over Russia is attainable, and nor do I think that yeah. most of us want to see a general war with Russia come out of this as a consequence. But on the other hand, I do believe that our leaders have got to display a mixture of firmness, absolutely rightly supplying arms to the Ukrainians and so on, but also an understanding that sometimes we can't send Putin to stand in the corner. He's a horrible man. We all want to see him go. We all want to see him disappear. But he's not going to disappear unless Russians make him disappear. And at some point, both the Ukrainians and the West are going to have to talk to him. And this is painful. But one thing I hope very much as this very frightening crisis continues to unfold is our leaders don't start resorting to um, rhetoric that means nothing about how we've got to see this guy off, that we've got to make no compromises, no concessions to these people. In the real world, there always have to be concessions, even with horrible regimes like Putin's. Yeah, but Max, many Western commentators and former policymakers and talking heads on television, they would say it's more difficult today to strike a bargain with a posturing Putin than with a frightened Khrushchev 60 years ago. I think this is true, that Khrushchev was restrained in some degree by the fact that he had a presidium there. Now, he was very much the big man in the Kremlin presidium, but there were 14 or 15 other around the table, whom had to, he had to keep on side. And some of them, um, even though they might not talk too loudly, from the beginning realized this was crazy, what he was doing, putting the missiles in Cuba, because they knew the Americans would respond drastically. Today, Putin's out there on his own. But we, keep, we, we have to keep firmly in mind. On the one hand, I think the West has been very weak for a long time in trying the combination, trying to have it always. On the one hand, um, trying to expand NATO up to Russia's borders, while at the same time cutting defence budgets, which was some of us have been saying for years, this was absolutely... A classic mismatch between ends and means. Exactly, exactly. But secondly, we're going to have to somehow try and, and make, make cut some sort of conversation or deal with, uh, with Putin. And in the end, we have to ask ourselves one question, not what makes us feel good in the West, but what is the least bad outcome for the Ukrainian people? Now, we would all love to think that the US cavalry could ride to the rescue of the Ukrainian people and see off these horrible Russians, but it ain't going to happen, probably rightly, because Putin's got nuclear weapons. So there's going to have to be some sort of deal. Uh, already we're hearing um, Ukraine's president saying that uh, he accepts that Ukraine can't join NATO. Um, I'm afraid that uh, Putin... Uh, may continue to press for recognition of, of um, the breakaway of the eastern provinces of Ukraine. All this stinks, but you have to consider the alternatives. I mean, one thing JFK often said during the fantastic meetings in the, in the White House during the 13 days of the Cuban crisis, he'd often put, put up an idea and he'd say, you may think this is a terrible idea, but wait till you think about the alternatives. 
<laughs> and what we have to keep saying to each other through this is, of course, everybody's feeling hugely emotional in the midst of this crisis. We can all see that the West is going to have to wake up. And we've got to be in this for the long haul, because I personally think we're entering a new world, um, a not very nice new world, in which we needn't despair. But we're going to have to um, rearm in a way that um, everybody will regret, and it's going to waste enormous sums of money. But we're going to have to do it in this new world with China and Russia, and in which we're going to have to base up some very unpleasant realities. But one of those realities is we're not going to be able to get our own way about everything. And do remember, Korea, the Korean War in 1950 started when um, the North Koreans, the communists, invaded South Korea. And the three years of bloody war, and at the end of it, of course, everybody wanted to see North Korea liberated, but it couldn't be done. And to this day, North Korea with nuclear weapons um, still survives as a um, oppressed victim state, whereas only South Korea is free. That was a lousy compromise, but it was better than the alternative of a, of a fight to the death. And again and again, we have to say, before you turn down this compromise, think about the alternatives. My guest is the distinguished British military historian, Max Hastings, whose best-selling books include Vietnam, An Epic Tragedy, it's 1945 to 75. Other books include All Hell Let Loose, The World at War, 1939 to 45, and Catastrophe, 1914, Europe Goes to War. And Max Hastings' forthcoming book, which we've been talking about, is called Abyss, The Cuban Missile Crisis, 1962. Max, one of the foremost lessons from the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you make this very clear in your recent London Times column, and this is this is um, Robert Kennedy here, the importance of placing ourselves in the other country's shoes. Now, I think this is a very important point. Do you think that Western governments are capable of trying to look at the Ukraine crisis from the Kremlin's vantage point? Max Hastings. We find it very difficult to do that, and, and yet it's absolutely essential. All our countries spend many billions on intelligence, and yet again and again, when a crisis erupts, uh, whether it's with China or with North Korea or, or with Moscow, um, that we find it so hard to think from the, the other guy's uh, viewpoint. And one lesson I, I feel that now I'm getting rather old that one has learned. When we're young and we, we go to college, uh, we think, there is one logic, there is one way of reasoning. And the older we get, the more we understand that every culture has its own logic and other cultures' logic is very different from our logic. And of course, the, the whole history of Russia is about Russia seeing itself as a victim state uh, being got at by the West. And to understand Putin's position, you have to understand first, it's driven by weakness, that Russia has only got three assets, um, in the big world. It's got oil, gas, and a willingness to use extreme violence. And Putin and many of his people, he couldn't be there if he didn't have substantial support from his people. They hate this feeling. They think it's so unfair that the West should prosper mightily and get so rich, while Russia, um, it is its population shrinking by a million a year. It can't build an electric toaster that anybody outside Russia would want to buy. Um, China's got a um, GDP um, um, eight, or, eight or nine times larger than Russia's. They feel this is so mean, this is so rotten, when Russia is a great country which deserves respect. And where we've been foolish, and I'm not suggesting that there was going to ever be a good way out with Putin, who's a horrible man, 
But we have been very foolish in trampling on not just Putin's sensitivities, but Russian sensitivities for years, and not trying to understand how these people, um, driven by this sense of it's all so unfair and by their sense of failure, yes. um, how they how this their is minds a, This work. is a very unfashionable thing to say because there's a concerted effort by a lot of commentators to shut down the argument that NATO expansion or EU expansion has had any impact here on Russia's sensibilities. Now, back in the mid to late 1990s, when NATO expansion was debated, many distinguished Western foreign policy thinkers for decades um, they, they, they opposed NATO expansion onto Russia's frontiers precisely because they believed such policies would annoy uh, a humiliated Russia so soon after the collapse of the Soviet Union in the way that a cornered, wounded animal can be dangerous. And, of course, Russia still has a vast arsenal of nuclear weapons. Here's one of those critics. This is Owen Harris in 1996. This is the editor of the National Interest in Washington. Look at it this way. If in 1989... You had been promised a deal by Moscow. We will dismantle the Warsaw Pact. Further, we will dismantle the Soviet Union. Further, we will end communist rule in, in Russia. We will do all these things. All we ask of you is that you don't take undue geopolitical advantage of this and move into what is now our area of interest, that you, you don't press us too hard in that respect. Who would not have taken such a bargain immediately and with great joy? We all would. And yet, having got all those results, we are now insisting that we must press further east, uh, right up into what has been Russian sphere of influence. It doesn't make sense to me. Now, that was the prominent Australian conservative realist Owen Harries in Washington in 1996, who, along with other leading foreign policy thinkers, George Kennan, Paul Nitzer, Robert Conquest, they opposed NATO expansion lest it provoke a badly humiliated Russia. Max Hastings, what was your position at the time? That was very much my position, and I, I never forgot um, having lunch in about 1992 with the last really smart um, American ambassador in London, Ray Seitz, who was a professional diplomat. And I said to Ray, I wonder what it's going to be like living in a world with um, only one superpower. And Ray responded, in my view, very shrewdly, and I've never forgotten his words. Uh, he said, um, that question presupposes that the United States is willing to exercise the role of, of, of the world's only superpower. And of course, in many ways, it hasn't. That American leadership has, has been very flaky um, uh, over the last 30 years. And it, of course, also, um, um, although America remains uh, the strongest military power on earth, that um, the rest of the NATO allies, uh, as I said earlier, are, uh, it's been quite extraordinary the way the NATO allies have gone along with the idea of NATO expansion, while at the same time disarming, 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 so that um, the Germans, in particular, have more or less emasculated themselves. I think the most important message today is we have to think long. That I was talking to one of my senior military friends a few days ago, and he said what he was worrying about was compassion fatigue in the West, that everybody today is very agitated about what's happening, horrible things happening in Ukraine. But he fears in a few weeks, because that's the nature of Western electorates, Everybody will move on and say, well, it was all very sad and awful, but let's think about something else. And we can't afford to do that. Um, we've had the wake-up call. We've seen just what horrible forces are out there. 
And I don't think many of us doubt that China is also capable of doing mm. some very, very alarming things. And we've got to keep paying attention. And this is not like the old Cold War. It's very different because this is really about um, territory and influence rather than about ideology. This is about, if you like, this crude power. But I'm afraid um, the commentators whom I respect most, the strategic gurus, um, they believe we're seeing the beginning of something, of a new era, which is not very nice. But it doesn't mean we're all doomed. It doesn't mean we're all necessarily going to be blown up. But we've got to take security seriously in a way that we've been so spoilt and so fortunate over the last 30, 30, 40 years that we've been able to avoid doing. And that's not too high a price to pay for maintaining freedom and democracy. But we must be prepared to pay it. And um, people are not going to like it when they, as they see petrol prices going up, as they see an inflation soaring away, and they're told that they've got to pay billions more for defense and so on. But our parents and our grandparents had to do much more in order to preserve our societies. I don't think we're going to be asked for anything like as much as they were asked, but we are going to be asked for something. And I do wish it, this is a time when we need some big people in charge of our respective countries. And I'm afraid at the moment, um, most of our countries have only got little people in charge. And that's dismaying because we do need people who can summon up the sort of rhetoric that John F. Kennedy did summon up, great rhetoric, which we all remember to this day. Uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but for what you can do for your country. And in Berlin, when he told an audience, a crowd of a million people, it's benign Berliner. Um, I'm a <laughs> Berliner. Um, and he electrified a million people. Indeed. Now, how many of our leaders today are capable of matching mm. that? Well, I suspect not your former understudy at the Daily Telegraph, who's now the British <laughs> Prime Minister. That's for another conversation. Max, thank you so much for putting the Ukraine crisis in a broader historical context. My pleasure. That was Max Hastings. His book, due in September, is called Abyss. The Cuban Missile Crisis 1962 is published by HarperCollins. And you can hear our exchange on his book, Vietnam. That was from November 2018. You can always find that out on the Between the Lines website archives. Up next, the global economy braces for the negative impact of Russia's war on Ukraine. Stay tuned for my panel with leading Sydney economists, Su Linong and Joanne Masters. Well, the days of borrowing money for next to nothing, they're coming to an end, aren't they? Central banks around the world are raising interest rates as they try to regain control over consumer prices. Inflation has been climbing at the fastest pace in decades. Additional rate hikes are likely to follow at a time when the outlook for the global economy is darkening. Now, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, energy and commodity prices, they've surged higher. So in this environment, what is Australia likely to do? Here, of course, jobs are booming, unemployment's at a very low flat 4%, and commodity prices are high, which means the federal budget which the Treasurer Josh Frydenberg delivers on March 29, that'll set out spades of tax revenue to the Australian economy. What a recovery. As the Australian Financial Review has editorialised, quote, it's an almost painless escape from the pandemic without any austerity. Well, let's turn to our panel. Su Lin Ong is Managing Director of RBC Capital Markets in Sydney. Hi there, Su Lin. Thanks for having me, Tom. 
And Joanne Masters is Chief Economist at Baron Joey, also in Sydney. Hi there, Joe. Good to chat with you, Tom. Now, several months ago, there was a great debate on whether US inflation was just temporary or transitory in response to the COVID openings. Joe, what are your thoughts now? That debate has clearly moved on to see not just higher inflation, but higher inflation for longer. And that's particularly been the case since the crisis in the Ukraine has added significant additional pressures to commodity prices and to global supply chains. And it seems to be quickly flowing through to indirect price pressures. So not just petrol at the Bowser, for example, but food at supermarkets and um, clothes that get delivered into stores more generally. So for me, I think prior to the Ukraine crisis, there were early signs that supply chain pressures were easing. We could see that with freight prices, semiconductor production. Now it's unclear how these geopolitical events will unfold or over what time frame, which means that that supply side pressure is going to add to the strong demand pull inflation that we're seeing. Expectation of faster wage growth um, does mean that inflation is going to be higher and FOMC members are now watching inflation expectations very closely. And US inflation's already at a 40-year high. And remember, in the early 80s, Paul Volcker from the Federal Reserve really ramped up rates to control inflation. So, Sue Lin, just how big of a change was the Fed's recent announcement to raise rates? So the Fed hiked rates by 25 basis points recently, and that was very much anticipated, well flagged. But what was probably a bit more surprising was the path of rate hikes over the course of this year and next. So the Fed pretty much signalling six more hikes this year. So that's a lot of tightening. It's assuming almost a hike every meeting for 2022 and further hikes in 2023. So they are suggesting multiple hikes over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. I think on top of that, what was surprising was a very clear signal that they're prepared to move to the tighter side of neutral. So putting policy in restrictive territory designed very much to dampen both inflation and potentially activity as well. So I think really this idea of the Fed's dual mandate, full employment and um, its 2% inflation target, it's really just a single mandate. It's all about inflation. It's about um, tempering inflation, making sure inflationary expectations are anchored. Um, and you do get the sense from the Fed that they are behind the curve. They're scrambling here um, and they have a lot of catch up to do in terms of getting policy to a more comfortable setting. All this perhaps vindicates the thinking of the distinguished economist Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary in the Clinton administration. Now, the war in Russia, of course, that's led to a soaring energy prices. Energy prices were going up before the war, but they're really soaring now. And that's adding to worries about that very inflation dragon you're talking about and whether the squeeze on consumers will eventually really slow down spending and economic growth. Joe, Larry Summers says, uh, he's not alone, he fears a return of stagflation. So high inflation, but also high unemployment in the US. Your thoughts? Well, we are seeing growth forecasts revised lower and inflation revised higher. And as Sue Lin said, we're looking at the Fed moving into um, restrictive tightening territory. Um, so you would expect there to be an activity impact to that. Um, 
I think so. We need to have a broader definition that includes labour markets. Um, so for me, I guess we're looking at an environment where inflation could head towards double-digit annual growth rates, but we're looking at lower inflation and still very strong labour markets. And the importance of including labour markets in that was really clear during the pandemic. Um, so never say never. Um, and engineering a soft landing in the US is not proven to be easy historically, but stagflation for me is certainly not my base case. Okay, Sulin, you mentioned that the Fed is scrambling to raise rates to rein in inflation. Chinese officials are also scrambling to contain the country's worst outbreak of COVID. This is the surge in Omicron variant infections. Now, that, of course, has meant more lockdowns, more restrictions, more closed factories in China. How big a risk is China now to the global recovery, given that those supply chains were already frayed? Su Lin. They were, and it's really, I think, um, delayed any recovery in supply chains and any sense of a return to normality. And I think when you look at China and the way that they are approaching COVID and the zero tolerance, the risks are really twofold for the global economy and recovery. Um, the first via supply chains, as you alluded to, um, really not recovering from um, the disruptions of last year, additional waves of COVID. I mean, at the end of the day, China is still in many ways the world's global manufacturer. And so any disruption there will, will definitely add um, to uh, those supply constraints at a time where demand, at least for now, is still very strong. So that's additional pressure, I think, um, that is of concern. And secondly, it's really the idea of, you know, locking down um, parts and big regions of China, big manufacturing um, hubs um, and slowing their growth there and what that means for global growth. And hence, accordingly, you are seeing expectations of, of global growth by many of the international bodies um, start to move lower. I think on the activity front, we're a little less um, concerned. We know China have many policy levers to pull um, they're already easing on the monetary policy stance and they will do additional fiscal stimulus. So they have that room to, to protect. It's really more, I think, on the price side and supply chain disruptions and, and that is um, an additional challenge for global activity. Well, keeping with the global economy and the war in Ukraine, these tight US-led sanctions on Russia, now some analysts are saying that the dollar won't remain the global reserve currency. This is the argument, Joe. Why would foreign countries use dollars if the greenback can be turned against them? This is precisely what the Americans are now doing to Russia. China's looking back at this. Now, surely China and other US adversaries, wouldn't they love to escape the financial hegemony of Uncle Sam? Joe. Uh, look, the US dollars withstood several periods where people have questioned its global role as a safe haven. And it's proven to be very resilient over time. And I think it would take a lot to truly break that. When we look at the amount of uh, transactions globally that happen uh, through the US dollar, it's still, you know, incredibly dominant. At, I guess at the moment, though, we are seeing quite a significant shift in the global geopolitical landscape. And I did read in The Economist magazine last week that autocracies now account for 31% of global GDP and that open societies trade over $15 billion a day with closed ones. So maybe things are changing, but um, it would take a lot, I think, to 
truly unseat the US dollar. So at this stage, the dollar defeatism is vastly overblown. Uh, Su Lin, your thoughts on that? I mean, why wouldn't China build its currency into a rival reserve currency? I think we've seen waves of this debate really over the last decade or, or even longer um, discussions around maybe China um, and that currency becoming uh, the global standard, also the euro as well. We've had that discussion. And I think we do go through these waves of looking at um, alternative currencies of big, uh, large economies. But ultimately, the US dollar has proved enduring. It's so integral to the global system. Um, And I think even now at times of of great stress and and, uh, uncertainty, we still see um, that that flight to the dollar. So um, we would say it's probably a little premature at this juncture to be talking about a significant demise in the dollar um, in terms of its global status. My guests are Su Lin Ong from RBC Capital Markets and Joanne Masters from Baron Joey, both leading Sydney-based economists. Let's now turn to what the global economic outlook means for Australia. Now, the Russian invasion means that, uh, as we discussed earlier, global inflationary pressures, they're expected to strengthen considerably Um, over the next few months. Now, that means growth in economies that are net energy importers, they're likely to slow. But what does this mean for a commodity exporter like Australia? Joe? We are a commodity exporter, but also the commodities that we export have seen really significant price increases. Coal, for example, at record highs, LNG, coal, iron ore, they're all delivering a economic dividend uh, through the terms of trade. They're boosting national income. That flows to corporate profits and also government revenue through the corporate tax take, which you'll see that dividend in um, next week's budget. Um, But there is an interesting dynamic because on the flip side, Australian consumers are facing price rises at the petrol bowser that are eye-watering. And for many, of course, that's an essential spend. Um, So, petrol prices at these levels effectively reduce disposable income. So I think there's a big picture that says net the economy is benefiting from that terms of trade boost, but there are distributional issues that will impact households and consumer spending is the largest part of our economy. And interest rates are rising virtually all over the world. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the United States uh, increased rates last week for the first time in four years. The Federal Reserve has talked about increasing rates by 50 basis points next time to rein in inflation. Now, during the last two years of COVID, the RBA has pretty much implied that interest rates won't move until 2024. Sulin, what do the financial markets now tell us? So the financial markets uh, for Australia have priced in multiple hikes for this year. At times, it's been five to six hikes, so about five at the moment. So, you know, a good 100 to 125 basis points of hikes just in 2022. They're telling you very clearly they do not believe the RBA will leave rates unchanged um, until 24, even 2023. And they expect Australia to be part of this global tightening cycle that you allude to, Tom. Um, and it's it's very clear, I think, in the RBA's language that they too are shifting away um, from leaving rates on hold for as long as they earlier suggested. And they've also talked about a rate 
tightening cycle starting this year as entirely plausible. For us, it makes a lot of sense. There are probably three key factors that suggest the RBA should get moving sooner rather than later. The first is that um, tighter global central banking stance. Um, we might lag a little bit, but not really for very long. Um, I think secondly, the economy here has clearly proved stronger and more resilient. Um, unemployment down at multi-decade lows, you know, an economy that has gotten through the last uh, wave of COVID pretty pretty unscathed, really. Um, and I think thirdly, inflation that is moving well above the ceiling of the RBA's 2 to 3% target range. So we are going to see uh, headline inflation at least 4.5% um, in the next print and core inflation probably closer to 3 and a quarter, 3.5%. So there are good reasons why rates will um, rise, we think, this year. And really, the question is, do we need emergency? cash rate settings of 10 basis points, we would argue it looks increasingly inappropriate. Yeah, Australia's public debt is not as high by international standards, but the fact remains our structural budget position has weakened after the pandemic. Joe, are there, are there significant differences between Australia and, say, the US when it comes to inflation and, 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 and just tackling this global economic crisis? So some of the factors that are driving inflation higher are global. Uh, petrol prices is an obvious one. Um, but there are technical differences uh, in the way that we measure inflation compared to the US. And there's also some underlying differences, which in the current environment are leading to Australian inflation being lower than in the US. Both are rising, um, but we, we are seeing lower inflation here. And I think we'll continue to see that. So, technically, the way that we treat housing and cars, for example, has an impact. We've also seen very different profiles for utility costs, which are an essential and very important part of the household budget, so have a reasonably significant weighting in the CPI. Um, electricity for households uh, in the US, for example, is up about 10% on a year ago compared to about 3% here in Australia. The, perhaps the biggest one, though, I guess, is around wages, um, because that's really what drives sustained inflationary pressures. And the wage setting structure here in Australia means that tight labour markets take longer to feed through. And that's something that the Reserve Bank here in Australia has been talking a lot about. Um, so, look, inflation headed higher. Um, the peak looks like it's going to be something like 5% on an annual basis, whereas inflation in the US already running at 7.9%. And got further to go. Okay, so Lynn, wrap this up. What's your general outlook for the economy? Look, we're fairly positive on the Australian economy over the course of the next 12, 18 months. Uh, we think that activity is starting um, from a better place. Uh, you know, very limited impact, as I said, from the last wave of COVID. Unemployment already 4%, heading well below 4 by the end of this year, probably around 3.7. Um, wages growth, while modest, is starting to pick up as that labour market tightens further. I think when you add, importantly, that big buffer of household savings that's been built up over the last couple of years, it's about an additional $270 billion 
about 13% of GDP that's sitting there and that can be deployed. Um, that does suggest some reasonable upside to um, what we think will already be pretty strong growth this year, well above trend around 4.5%. And as the borders open more fully and, and migration comes back, that's also a positive. So we think the economy is in really good shape over the next 12, 18 months um, and the inflation, as Joe alluded to, will pick up accordingly and, and, and the bank will need to act. I think the bigger question for Australia is beyond um, that period of time. You know, as stimulus is withdrawn, as rates move higher, um, what does Australia look like further down the track uh, when really um, those extraordinary amounts of stimulus are, are, are no longer there? Um, that's where I think we need to think a bit more about um, the productivity story, structural reforms. That's really what keeps your growth um, going at, at such high levels. But yeah, definitely the outlook is encouraging for the next little while. And that productivity enhancing reform agenda is a tough ask politically. Well, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, he hands down his budget on March 29, and you've both helped put our economic outlook in a broader global context. Joanne, Sulin, thanks so much for being on ABC Radio. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me, Tom. Su Linong is Managing Director of RBC Capital Markets in Sydney, and Joanne Masters is Chief Economist at Baron Joey, also in Sydney. Well, thanks again for your company today, and remember to hear this or past episodes, including my recent exchange with the Washington neoconservative scholar Eli Lake. If you'd like to hear that or past episodes, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you get your shows online. I'm Tom Switzer and hope you can tune in next week. Listener.